uh, which is a, a confession from about 500 years ago that summarizes some of the main teachings of Scripture. Today we come to Lord's Day 20 about the Holy Spirit. So let's read Lord's Day 20 uh, together. Uh, I'll read the words, you confess them with me in your heart. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, he is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, he is also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits, to comfort me and to remain with me forever. This is our confession, summarizing what God has revealed to us in his word. Brothers and sisters, what can you not live without? I wonder if someone asked you that question, what you would say. What comes to mind for me right away uh, was some times in the past when my phone broke, when my internet went down, or that time right after we moved here that we had a power outage for like 24 hours. It felt like maybe I couldn't live without those things. Maybe if someone asked you that question, you'd think of uh, the question and take it a little bit more seriously. Maybe you'd think about some family members or some friends, some people really close to you, some people it would be really hard to live without. But I wonder if you'd think of something more literal. Some of us might be more literally minded. We might think of water. It's not something that we think of too much because we have so much water available to us. But it's absolutely true. It's impossible for us to live even a few days without water. And we have so much water available to us, but this isn't the case for everyone, and it wasn't always the case. The Israelites, on the other hand, in comparison to us, they really knew, they had a vivid picture of how much they needed clean, fresh water. And that's one of the things that they remembered, as I mentioned earlier, in the Feast of Booths. For a week, the Israelites would gather together and they would live in little tents. And they would re- this would remind them of the Exodus, their 40 years wandering in the desert. You can imagine wandering in the desert for 40 years would teach you how dependent you are on God for water. And this is what the Israelites would remember at this feast, God's provision for them, giving them water when they really needed it, even water from a rock in the desert, in the wilderness. More than that, this, this feast, it, w- it was a party. It was a celebration. They would celebrate the, the harvest. They would thank God for giving them rain the last year and ask him to give them rain in the coming year as well. And so at that feast, on the last and the greatest day of that feast, likely many believe as the priest was ceremonially pouring out water from the pool of Salome in front of the people when it was quiet and everyone was watching, That's when Jesus stood up and shouted out a short sermon. He yelled to everyone that he is the fresh, life-giving water that we truly cannot live without. And he invited anyone who is thirsty to come to him and drink. So today we'll look at Jesus' message in John 7, and we'll look at it in connection with Lord's Day 20. And we'll see that the Spirit's working in the background at every point. We'll look at Lord's Day 20 and John 7 under the theme, Are You Thirsty? And we'll see it's the Holy Spirit who makes us thirsty, the Holy Spirit who makes us drink, 
and the Holy Spirit who makes us overflow. And so in John 7, Jesus alludes to the coming of the Holy Spirit in a new way that hadn't happened before at the day of Pentecost. But a few months after this event, Jesus would explain to his disciples in much more detail just what it meant that the Holy Spirit was coming upon them. Specifically, on the very night before Jesus was betrayed, before he was arrested, leading to his brutal death, he spoke to his disciples at great length about the Spirit that he would send them when he left. And some of you maybe have had to say goodbye to family members before. Maybe you've moved away and you weren't sure when you were going to see people again. Maybe, uh, I know for a fact actually, that some of you moved away from your family a long time ago. And you said goodbye when uh, back at a time when communication wasn't so easy. And you knew that you might never see these people in the flesh on earth again. Well, Jesus knows he's about to be killed. And he'll rise again and be with his disciples for a short time. But then he's going to leave the disciples on earth without his physical presence for the rest of their earthly lives. And he wants to explain to them, he wants them to know that he is not leaving them alone. In fact, amazingly, Jesus says to his disciples just something profound, something that that seems shocking. It seems almost untrue. Jesus says to his disciples that he knows their hearts were filled with sorrow at the news he was about to leave. But Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. He tells his disciples that he's been with for years, that he's been teaching and saving and helping. It's better if I go away from you. Because as Jesus explained, once he went, he was going to send another helper to remain with them forever. And I'll be honest with you. I've always known about this text and I've trusted it as much as you can. But but I found it difficult to believe. Isn't isn't that tough to believe? How could it possibly be better for the disciples? How could it possibly be better for you and me that Jesus physically is gone from us? That we can't go up to him directly and ask him our questions. That he's gone up to heaven. But as I studied this text as I studied last week's uh, message as well, I feel I really began to understand this and believe it in a new sense. Because as we heard last week, Jesus hasn't really left us, has he? Jesus has gone to heaven, but he's still our dear helper. He's still working for you and for me every day. He's still advocating, he's still reigning, and he's still preparing a place for us. And now that he's gone He has sent us another helper, another person of the Trinity as well. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And in order to really understand this, we need to remember the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal power. Sometimes we can think of him this way. But the Holy Spirit isn't an it. Sometimes we call the Holy Spirit it. But the Holy Spirit is a he, just like the Father and the Son. He's a person of the Trinity And we read throughout the Bible that we can work uh, for him or against him. We can grieve him or lie to him. Or we can also work with him. We can walk in step with him, we're told. And this person of the Trinity has been sent down to stay with you and me forever. As yet another helper. So while Jesus was on this earth, his disciples had God with them. But the Holy Spirit was sent down, and now all believers have, in a new sense, God himself in them. 
You and I have God in us. And that's what we truly need. We did desperately need God's work on this earth. We did need his work outside of us, living on our behalf and dying on our behalf. But what we really need is Jesus inside of us. And in a sense, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. First, he, he makes us thirsty, to use the language of John 7. Before Jesus and his work can fill our hearts, we need to thirst for it. We need to long for it. And so maybe picture it this way. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? I've had it at times at, at work before. Maybe you've had it as well. Times when you're so thirsty, you can barely think of anything else. You can hardly do anything else. If someone was to come up to you and offer you your favorite meal, you wouldn't even want it. Not until you can get the one thing you need. Not until you can get a drink of water. What you crave is a drink. Well, Jesus reveals in John 7 that we should be longing for and craving for, pushing everything else aside until we can get him. In fact, this is what we all long for, in a sense. Imagine many of you are uh, familiar with the text that says, God has written eternity on our hearts. Or maybe the quote from Blaise Pascal that says that we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And we can see if we look around us, if even if we look at ourselves, this is so true. There is so much discontentment in our own hearts. Our hearts are restless without God. There's so much discontentment in the world. People are thirsty, but so often they don't know what for. To really be thirsty, as Jesus is talking about it, is to sense our need for God in our life. It's to long for salvation and forgiveness. It's to be unhappy, discontent with ourselves, to be overwhelmed with our sin and guilt and just emptiness apart from God. It's to realize our need from God himself and our desperate need for a Savior who can bring us back to God. And though we are all thirsty, we're all discontent, we're all thirsty for something, often we don't know what we're thirsty for apart from God's opening up our eyes. In Jeremiah 2, for example, God calls out his people because they were longing for something. And instead of going to God himself, the Israelites looked to false gods for satisfaction. And so God says to them, My people have committed two sins. First, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Secondly, they have dug their their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I once heard John Piper say something similar that stuck with me for many years. He said that we ought to be hungering for God and Him alone because only God can satisfy. And John Piper explained that if we're not hungering for God, it's probably because we're busying ourselves, going around, snacking on the world instead. He said we're constantly looking, we're constantly longing for something, but we're looking to work looking to money, looking to relationships, looking to vacations, going anywhere and everywhere, and we're snacking, just trying to fill that hole, trying to satisfy our soul's great longing. But what we need to be is hungry and thirsty, longing to go back to God, to be loved and accepted by Him, and to live with Him and love Him forever. That's what we need. That's what we were created for. This is what our neighbors and our family needs as well. But the question is, how can we address 
other people's longings and desires? How we can change their how can we change their hearts? Or even a, a harder question, how can we even change our own desires? How can we change our own hearts? This is too much for us. And that is why we need another helper. That is why Jesus sent his spirit to go inside of us and to restore our uh, desires, to correct them, to make us thirsty for God once again. As Jesus tells us in John, he's sending his spirit so that the good news of him, the true, satisfying, living water, might go out to the world. And so he's sending his spirit to make the world thirsty, in a sense. As Jesus says it later on in the book of John, he says, the spirit is coming, and when he comes, he will convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And I wonder if you think about this, because I have to admit, uh, often I don't. But really, truly, conviction, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, is a gift. Really think about that for a minute. Are you thankful for the Holy Spirit's gracious gift of convicting you? Maybe you've been convicted in the past, or maybe you're here this evening, and there are things that the Holy Spirit is just pressing onto your heart. Maybe recently the Holy Spirit's been impressing on your heart something that you've been doing or thinking that just isn't right. It's not good. It's not holy as God himself is holy. We heard about earlier today. It's not pleasing or glorifying to God, and you know it. Maybe one text or one idea has come up over and over again recently. Maybe it's the Lord laying it on your heart. And this can feel like a burden or an inconvenience, can't it? If you've ever experienced this. But honestly... It's a gift from God himself. And I wonder how often we stop and praise the Holy Spirit for the gift of conviction. And I wonder how often we pray that the Holy Spirit might do this work more. That he might open up his word to us. That he might show us his law. That he might convict us of all the areas where we fall short. Show us all the ways, all the places in our lives that we really don't want Jesus to go. That we don't want to be transformed. That the Holy Spirit might comb through our lives and our hearts and our days and point us out and show to us the things that aren't pleasing to God, that aren't glorifying to Him, that might strain our relationship with Him. And not only that, but hurt us and our family and even our witness to the world as we strive to look like Christ. And the Holy Spirit is a gift. And the conviction He works in our hearts is a gift too. Not to make us feel condemned ultimately, but to make us thirsty. To make us run to the only place where we can truly be filled from our condemnation and our guilt. The only place we can truly be satisfied. Because it's important to be thirsty. And if we're not, we need to pray that that God would fill us with the Holy Spirit and make us thirst for him. And not let us be satisfied snacking on the world instead. And so the Holy Spirit, God in us, makes us thirsty for God. And thirsty specifically for Jesus Christ. The one who can bring us back to God. And the Holy Spirit not only makes us thirsty, but he also makes us drink. That's our second point. Jesus says in our passage, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so very clearly, being thirsty, longing for something, even longing for God, isn't any help at all if you don't go to the right place to drink. As we heard earlier, Israel went to the wrong place. and Lots of other people do too. Uh, Sometimes we do too, when we're longing for something. Think about it in just the terms of the illustration that Jesus gives. Think about it when you're physically thirsty. 
When you're physically thirsty, especially if you're anything like me, often you can go to unhelpful places, can't you? You're physically thirsty, so you grab a coffee, or you grab a pop. Theoretically, you could even, uh, if you were thirsty, grab poison to drink, and it would be no help at all. The opposite is true. When we're thirsty, we need to go to the right place. Jesus tells us where we need to go is right to him. More than that, we don't just need to go to Jesus, but in our text, Jesus says, come to me and drink. Could you imagine somebody dying of thirst right beside a huge river of pure, clean water? I fear, in a sense, that's happened to many people. Many people in church, they come near to the water. They come near to Jesus Christ. They hang out with Christian friends. Maybe they read their Bible or go to Bible study. They're surrounded by the water of life, by Jesus Christ. But the one thing they fail to do is drink themselves. This is such personal language here, and it's echoed in our confession as well. It's talking all about me. It's talking all about you. We don't need Jesus physically near us. We need Jesus inside of us. We need to each personally be united with Christ. We need to be united with him by faith. And Jesus in our text explains that this is what it means to come to him and drink. Right after saying that, he talks about those who believe in him. Those are the ones who know Jesus. And not just knowing facts about Jesus, but ones who truly know Jesus. People who who trust Jesus. Trust that he's exactly who he says that he is. That he's God in the flesh. That he loves us. that, That he died for our sins. And that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And it's not just believing that's true for others, but also for me. We believe by God's grace through the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus loves dearly not only others, but he also loves me. Jesus came and paid the ultimate price not only for others, but he also came for me. He paid for my sins, and I'm secure in his loving arms already now, I will be safe there forever. It's important to come to Jesus and to drink yourselves. As the Catechism puts it, He, the Holy Spirit, is given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all of His benefits. If you come to Jesus, you believe in Him, then you, you share in Jesus Christ. You share in His perfect payment for sins. You share in every one of his benefits. Forgiveness of sins and holiness and righteousness and everlasting life. It's the Holy Spirit that works this faith that unites you and me to Jesus Christ once and for all. You might have noticed that we don't talk about the Holy Spirit very much in the confession. Isn't that kind of shocking? We have two Lord's Days that are fairly long on God the Father. Then we have nine, I believe, on God the Son. Jesus Christ. And then just this one short Lord's Day about the Holy Spirit. The Catechism spends very uh, little time on him compared to the Father and the Son. He's sort of an unsung hero working hard for us and in us, but often in the background. And we should focus on the Holy Spirit uh, a bit more than we do, shouldn't we? We should thank him and praise him and love him. And we should probably focus on his work and the comfort offered to us here more. But the truth is, we shouldn't rewrite the catechism. 
We shouldn't focus on uh, the Holy Spirit too much. Instead, we can thank and honor the Holy Spirit's work by focusing on Jesus Christ and his work more. As Jesus himself says in John 15, what the Holy Spirit came to do, the reason he's sending the Spirit into our hearts is so that the Spirit can testify to us about him, about Jesus. Likewise, the Spirit inspired the Holy Scriptures, didn't he? And then what did Jesus say Scriptures are all about? He said that all of these things, they testify about him. And then the Spirit is the one who enters into us and lays these truths about Jesus on our hearts and help us grasp on to Jesus and his death and his resurrection. I love the way that Dane Ortland explains the work of the Holy Spirit and how he does this, how he unites us to Christ, makes these words come alive, helps us to truly believe them. Dane Ortland says that the Holy Spirit makes the heart of Christ revealed in scriptures real to us so that it's not just heard, but seen. And it's not just seen, but felt. And it's not just felt, but it's enjoyed. The Spirit takes what we read in the Bible and believe on paper about Jesus, and it moves it from theory to reality. For example, Dane Ortland says, it's one thing as a child for someone to tell you, you know what? Your dad really loves you. That's one thing. It's another thing, and utterably more real, to be swept up in your father's embrace, to feel the warmth of his hug, to hear the beating heart within his chest, to instantly know the protective grips, uh, grip of his arms. It's one t- thing to hear your father loves you. It's another thing to feel his love. And this is the glorious work of the Holy Spirit. To help us to know Christ and his love, not just intellectually, but to really know it, and maybe even by God's grace to, to more and more feel it. It's the Spirit who works the faith in our hearts that unites us to Christ and makes us share in all these benefits and helps us begin to enjoy these benefits. So the Holy Spirit doesn't demand attention himself. Instead, he convicts us. He makes us thirst. And then he points us where the thirsty need to go. The only place they can go to be satisfied. They need to go to Christ and drink. In this way, the Holy Spirit's our comforter sent to remain with us forever. He stays with us, always uniting us to Christ by faith and pointing us to what he's done, pointing us to his love for us, pointing pointing us to the fact that he's returning for us. The Holy Spirit, as he fills us with Christ, transforms us radically. And as he does that, we see that he transforms us, he transforms the thirsty people like us so dramatically that we overflow. That's our third and final point. Jesus says in our text that whoever believes in him, whoever comes to him and drinks the water welling up to eternal life, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart, Jesus says. Literally out of his belly. Out of the his inmost being. Out of the depths of his soul. Jesus tells us that when we come to him and drink, we'll be transformed from the inside out. The one who comes to Jesus and believes in him and trusts his promises and receives him himself, his life and death, his resurrection, also receives all of Jesus' benefits, his love, his protection, his perfect forgiveness and advocacy and care. Whoever comes to him and receives these things, living water will flow out from their souls. The picture we get here is of us 
being parched land. Imagine it for a second in your mind. Imagine dry, cracking, rock-hard ground. Christ says that whoever comes to him will not only be satisfied, they won't just become good, healthy, watered soil, but Christ will actually provide for them much more. He'll provide for them water in abundance. This dry land will overflow, and not just into little puddles, not just into a small pond. That would be amazing enough. But this parched ground will be so blessed and so filled with Christ and his love that it will well up to overflowing with Christ's love so that a river of water pours out of them. Imagine a river of water pouring out of you. But actually, that's not true, is it? That's not actually what Jesus says. Look at verse 38 again, and you'll see Jesus' promise. He says, whoever believes in me, it won't have a river of water coming out of them. But out of his heart, out of the depths of his soul, will flow rivers of living water. As if a river wasn't enough. Jesus says rivers, plural, will flow out of those who come to him and drink. Rivers will flow out of their very souls. When we're united by faith to Christ, God pours out an abundant supply of his mercy on us. He fills us to overflowing, far exceeding our needs. Though we were dead in our trespasses and sins in Christ, God gives us abundant mercy, abundant forgiveness, abundant grace, abundant life. As Jesus himself, a few chapters before this, told a Samaritan woman at a well in John chapter 4, this woman who had been thirsty, not just physically, but who had been looking for joy and satisfaction in five previous wives and then a boyfriend she was living with. Jesus promised her that if she came to him, he would provide her with a spring of water welling up all the way to eternal life from inside of her. God doesn't promise us drops of his mercy or not just enough of his benefits but he overwhelms us, overflowing uh, with his mercy and kindness and goodness. And what God already did this in part in the Old Testament. In our text, he promises this in full only after his glorification. That's after his death and resurrection and ascension. Because we do see the Spirit working in the Old Testament too, don't we? We see it poured out on leaders in particular. And we know that it's the Holy Spirit who truly brings even Old Testament saints to faith. But Jesus' promise here is that after his glorification, that is after he died for you, after he is raised for you, after he ascended into heaven, that we would have the Holy Spirit poured out even more powerfully working in us today, since Pentecost, filling us to overflowing in this way, but with all the benefits of Christ. He transforms us as our old nature is put to death with Christ, and more and more we see the Spirit working in our lives. Of course, we'll see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We'll see love pouring out of us to those around. We'll see joy pouring out to those around. Patience, self-control, goodness, and all the rest of the list. More than that, we seem to get a picture of this living water flowing out of us, bubbling up in our souls, and pouring upon others as well. We can't help but begin to show. We can't help but begin to tell our kids about Jesus Christ. Our, Our husband or our wife about Jesus Christ, our fellow church members, our neighbors in the world as well. We can't help but show them who Christ is and tell them who he is. As we're filled up with the Spirit, it just bubbles out over us. 
And that's what the Spirit himself does. We can see it so clearly, especially in the books of Acts. Uh, he enables us to testify of Jesus too. And this takes work and it takes uh, a constant effort. But first of all, it should be our constant prayer that the Spirit might work in us this way. And we can be so thankful because look again at our text. And you'll say that, see that in this passage, this isn't a command. Jesus, we're commanded similar things elsewhere, but here Jesus doesn't command dry ground like us to become rivers of water. He knows that we can't do this on our own. Instead, Jesus invites us to come to him, and he says, he promises, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so if we don't see this as much as we want in our lives, and I, I, would, I would bet that not a single one of us here does, if we don't see this as much as we want in our lives, what we need to do is clear. We need to go back to Jesus, drink deeply from him, and ask Jesus to keep his promise. And we need to remember here, as always, when we see a promise in the Bible, Jesus doesn't promise like I do, or, or like some of you out there might do. You ever have it where you give a promise, and then maybe your kid brings it up or something, and you're like, oh, shoot, I did say that, didn't I? <laughs> uh, I wish I hadn't said that. That's, that's not how Jesus promises. Jesus loves it when we hold him to his promises. That's exactly why God gave them to us. That's why he had them written down for us. Jesus loves it when we hold him to his promises. That's why he gave them to us. And so in this passage, we have a beautiful picture of Jesus' gospel call. And we can see that the Spirit is our perfect helper every step of the way in this transformation. And to end off this sermon, I'd like to share a perfect illustration of the Spirit who lives within you and within me. The Spirit's mighty work that I came across a couple weeks ago. In 1955, Billy Graham, the, the world-renowned preacher, was invited to speak for four nights at Cambridge University. And as you can imagine, this was just a wonderful opportunity for Billy Graham to speak to some of the best and brightest scholars in the world. And so Billy Graham, for the first three nights of four, uh, he gave impressive academic lectures, trying to explain Christianity by quoting intellectuals and scholars. And yet afterwards, he could really tell that his messages were all falling flat. And so he got down on his knees and he prayed after the third speech. He repented of trying to do the Holy Spirit's work himself, trying to convict people intellectually, trying himself to make them thirsty and make them drink, trying to transform them himself. Praying, Billy Graham felt compelled to throw away his big impressive lecture for day number four and simply preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, trusting the Spirit to work. And Dick Lucas was there. He's now a well-known preacher himself. He was there on that fourth night. And he explained that Billy Graham got up and began in Genesis and went through the whole Bible talking about every single sacrifice that comes up. Billy Graham spent the night talking about our sin and how because you and I are so sinful, how because the human race is so sinful, animal after animal after animal needed to die. Their blood needed to be poured out because sin leads to death and always has from the beginning. And yet, Billy Graham explained, all of these animals ultimately couldn't help. We can't be saved by the blood of animals. God's justice really demanded your blood and mine. 
Apparently, some of the Christians there were so embarrassed by this message, they couldn't imagine that any of the bright, sophisticated intellectuals there in the audience were going to believe this crude message about blood and sacrifices. But Billy Graham preached unapologetically and without shame that Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, that he's the one that let his blood be poured out so that you might not die, so that I might not die, but so that we might have life and have it in abundance. And at the end of the message, Billy Graham gave an invitation out to stay and learn about committing yourself to Christ. And to absolutely everybody's shock, about 400 students stayed. Dick Lucas went on to mention that a number of years later, he met a young pastor, and he asked him about when he became a Christian. And he said it was that night, that fourth night, at Cambridge University. And Lucas asked, how did that happen? And the pastor said that all he remembered was that night, he walked out of the auditorium, and for the first time, he believed, Christ really died for me. And his life was never the same again. By God's grace, he was completely transformed. The good news of Jesus Christ was poured out into him, and eventually it poured out to others as well. Eventually he became a pastor because he wanted to share that life-changing message with others as well. And it's so incredible to think that Billy Graham, by God's grace, was equipped not with his own smarts, not with his own genius, but with the Holy Spirit. And he could preach a message like that, and the Holy Spirit, working in so many people, could open their hearts wide to receive that message and make them believe it, and then even begin to equip those people as well to overflow with living water. And this same Holy Spirit dwells in power in you and me and all believers, so we might more and more look like Christ and more and more testify to Christ in all of our words and all of our actions as well. What a comfort that Jesus Christ truly did send a powerful helper to remain for us, with us forever. And we can praise God for Jesus Christ, who is our living water, the only thing, or rather the only one, that we truly can't live without. And we can praise God that he went to heaven, and this was better for us, because he left us not alone. But instead, he has equipped us with his spirit. We can praise God for this spirit, who makes us thirsty for Christ, who makes us drink from Christ, and also makes us overflow for Christ. Amen. Let's sing together in response, hymn 47, verses 1, 2, and 3.